8. <clears throat> Today is February the 15th, 2011. And is the Glory Be Girls tomorrow? I thought it was the last Wednesday of the month. It's right in the middle. I don't know. I hadn't got it right one time on the bulletin in about three weeks. Okay, tomorrow is Glory Be Girls, and it starts in the morning, 10. <laughs> and there'll be some of us workers out there. I hope we don't make too much noise and disturb, but we have to press on with uh, getting the building connected. Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. Let's prepare ourselves this evening. In our usual fashion, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, the option of rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for another day and for your word and for revealing the great things that only you are able to do. You, you not only reveal them, but they, you will surely bring them to pass. We need to get it straight because there's much confusion and it will strengthen our hope, our confidence that you are in control of all things and we, had, we have everything to look forward to. So we pray that you will help us to focus this evening for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I have a lot of news things that I was, clips and things I was going to bring out, but we've got a lot to cover, and so we're just going to get right into it. We're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and both these epistles have much to do with eschatology, things that will, are yet to come, and especially in this chapter two of Second Thessalonians. There are people all over the place with regards to what's going to happen in the future. How many of you have heard of Dominion theology? Anybody? Dominion theology is the idea that we are getting things ready for Christ's return, and when we get it all squared away, then Christ is going to return. That is laughable, and yet a lot of people buy into that idea. Of course, a lot of people don't even believe there's going to be a millennium that Jesus Christ is not really going to come back and set up his kingdom on earth for a thousand years. There's many who believe that we're going to go through part or even most of the tribulation. And so what we're studying is, is of such great import because it has to do with what you're looking for next. What is next on God's agenda? If, if we have to go through part of the tribulation before Jesus Christ returns, then that's what we would be anticipating, would be going through the horrors of the worst time on earth that ever has been or ever will be. However, that's not where we are, and we are substantiating it in First Thessalonians as well as Second Thessalonians Jesus Christ is going to come and personally take us off of this planet and he is going to deliver us from the wrath that is yet to come. Now, 
there's a lot of people who are not on board with that, and there's a lot of confusion. So we are going, tonight we're going to go very slowly. We're going to start in verse uh, 3, essentially, and we're going to look at some things that for some of you, unless you're really into focusing and concentrating, are going to find it hard. Because I've got a lot of quotes from theologians on specific words, specific data. And I hope that you will stay tuned in because these things are important. Not only for you, but those who are listening. This goes all over the world on the Internet. And this will help people specifically and definitely know what to look forward to. Or should we be looking for the Antichrist? Is he going to come in our time? Are are we waiting for Christ? All these things have to do with the details of what we are studying. And in every case, it's always the Word of God that straightens it all out. It's there. But we can't just glibly go through it or boldly say something that we cannot substantiate. So as we go through these verses, keep in mind the importance of what we are doing, even though it might be boring some may think the walls are just the paint's going to peel right off the wall. But it's necessary. So, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So far, we've gone through the first two verses. <clears throat> now, we, we request you, brethren, with regards to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together with Him. You might already have in your a notation in your Bible, this is definitely, absolutely referring to what we call the rapture, Jesus Christ coming to get his bride. So that's, he's setting up the subject matter. This is the issue that he is talking about. That you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message of a letter that it is from us, to the effect that, fact that the day of the Lord has come. They were upset, some of them. These were fairly new believers, and even though they had the Apostle Paul there personally to teach them, they didn't have a lot of experience. They didn't have time to uh, grow in the Word as we have. So they were more vulnerable to the deception and the heresy, the apostasy that was going on at that time. And so Paul is going to address this. What were they afraid of? Why were they upset? Well, they thought, well, if, they, if the day of the Lord has begun, and we're going to go in just a moment into the day of the Lord again, because if we just go right on past and we don't know in a very specific way what the day of the Lord is, then this isn't going to make sense to us. But they thought they missed the rapture. Or else there isn't a rapture. Did, did Paul lie to them? What's going on here? They were being persecuted and there were those who were telling them beyond a shadow of a doubt, we are in the day of the Lord. Remember, Paul told us about the day of the Lord and now we're in it. And they said, yeah, but wait a minute. He said he was going to deliver us from the wrath to come. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he gave great detail. That's most specific information on Jesus Christ returning to gather his bride, take him taking us back with him. So did they miss that? Was Paul lying? All this had to be straightened out. So right off the bat, in this chapter, 
Paul is going to address this head-on with regards to the Lord's returning. Had the day of the Lord begun or not? And we're going to see that he's going to explain to them it's impossible for the day of the Lord to have already begun. And he's going to give us three things that have to happen before the day of the Lord is going to begin. We see that in that last verse, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. And we're going to see that it had not come, but what we, where we must go before we move on to verse 3 is to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And I want you to go there in your Bibles. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, I know I've already taught this. But I would, I would imagine that if I called on one of you or all of you and said, okay, I want you to give me a dissertation what 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is all about. Ooh, something about darkness and light. Uh, let's see, has something about the day of the Lord, uh, something like that. No, Paul is specific, and so... I'm going to put it up on the board, and we're just going to go through these notes quickly. And I might skip some. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. Now, as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So Paul had already talking, uh, talked to them about this. He would already taught them. And so he didn't have to go into it. But we do get something here that is interesting. He says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. What does that mean? It means it's going to be a surprise. They're not going to be anticipating it. Then we, we'll just drop down. <coughs> Verse 2, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now we're going to look at, we went into detail of what the day of the Lord is. Starting with this second paragraph here. God has intervened periodically throughout history in order to achieve his divine purpose. However, God will drop the hammer on unbelievers left on earth after the rapture with unprecedented and concentrated judgment called the day of the Lord and will eject both Satan and unbelievers off the planet to bring an end to their rule over the world system. Revelation chapter 6, verse 19. This will be the first phase of the day of the Lord. So what we're going to see is the day of the Lord is a huge segment of time. It's going to cover two dispensations. It's going to cover the dispensation that we know of as the tribulation, it's going to encapsulate the second advent and a thousand years of Christ's reign. So when it talks about the day of the Lord, we're talking about a huge chunk of time and a lot of things are going to be going on. And sometimes when the Bible is referring to the day of the Lord, it's only referring to the first phase. The first phase is the judgment phase. That's the first seven years. Can you all see this? This chart here, here's the day of the Lord. It goes from the beginning, which we would call Daniel's 70th week, or the tribulation from the beginning there all the way to the end of the millennium. 
thousand seven years at least. The first phase is, as we're going to see in First Thessalonians five, is referred to as a darkness, and this is divine wrath that's going to come upon Israel, and indeed the entire world. It's going to be it's going to be proper because those who are left on earth after we're gone are going to be in spiritual darkness. They love the darkness. They hate the light. So the first phase of the day of the Lord that goes seven years up into the second advent is the phase of of darkness and wrath. From that point on, Jesus Christ comes and he rules for a thousand years. The millennium, this will be a time of divine blessing and it's referred to as light. So, we see that when we're talking about the day of the Lord, we can go to some verses where it's talking about the blessing phase. We can go to other verses and it's talking about the wrath, divine wrath stage. And then there's some that, like at the very end, that at the end of the millennium, human history is essentially over in that phase. And the great white throne is going to take place, but... God is going to, what's he going to do? He's going to make a new heavens and a new earth. And that is encapsulated in the day of the Lord. So when we're talking about the day of the Lord, we're talking about a huge chunk of time. And when we are looking at verses that have the day of the Lord in it, we have to think in our minds, okay, is this talking about the, the judgment phase or the blessing phase? Is this talking about those who are in darkness or those who are going to be in light? The broad day of the Lord, which is, when we say the broad day, we're talking about the whole entire thing, will not include the rapture of the church, but it will include the second advent of Jesus Christ. Uh, Well, I have to go up a little bit to show here. Second advent right here. This is when Jesus Christ comes to set up his millennial kingdom. Let me just go through here a ways. Now, in, let's look in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and verse 3 is very important. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and verse 3, it says, look in verse 2, it says, For you yourselves know full well the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. It's talking about the day of the Lord. It's going to come up. When it starts, it's going to be a surprise. Now, verse 3, While they are saying peace and safety... Then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child and they shall not escape. So let me, I have a, a timeline that y'all haven't seen because I just made it. This is the cross and you'll notice this timeline is green. The green in this is referring to the age of the Jews. There's just a little short time after the cross, which happens to be 50 days after the resurrection, the church age began, day of Pentecost. Now, this, rep- this, line, <laughs> this timeline is not to scale, as you can see. This is about 2,000 years already here. At the end of the church age, before the day of the Lord begins, we're out of here. We're going up. 
then you're, go, you're going to have five. The, the, the judgment phase begins. See, here's the judgment phase from this point here where the second advent comes down, which is seven years. This area right here is the judgment phase darkness. And it, it's going to start with the first seal, which is in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 2. This is where the beginning of birth pains. The, even the terminology that the Bible uses is descriptive of what it's going to be like. A woman does not know when she's going to have birth pains. It's going to come upon her suddenly, unsuspectedly. She might be nine months pregnant. She might even be past due. But it's a surprise when it happens because it's just all of a sudden, bam, it's there. And the birth pains begin, the judgment phase, with the first seal... And then they get stronger and stronger to where by the time you get over here to the end of the judgment phase of the day of the Lord, it's the hard labor. That's when it's really significant, horrible judgment. You'll notice here we've got birth pangs. This is the midpoint here where the abomination of desolation is going to take place. You also see here a trumpet and you see a bowl. These are all judgments. The seventh seal actually equates and goes right into the trumpet judgments. And the seventh trumpet judgment actually incorporates the bowl judgments. This is all in the judgment phase of the day of the Lord. It will end with the second advent when Jesus Christ comes here. Bam, right here. That judgment phase is over. Then we're in the blessing phase, the light phase, the millennium. Over here, you have the great white throne, GWT, and your dotted line. That starts eternity. Now, that is if... I'm not even addressing the issue here of the dispensation of the fullness of time. We went over that. If, if that's the case, eternity doesn't start here. It's going to start over here somewhere, but we're not on that right now. We're looking at this. So this is the broad day of the Lord. It goes a thousand seven years this whole time. And you have the different seals. You have the first seal, the Antichrist. Now this is what we're going to go over in great detail. I'm just throwing out this as a general perspective right now. Because we're going to see in our scripture of Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, two of the things that are going to be mentioned in these verses that the apostasy has to come first and the, and the Antichrist has to be revealed. Now, I, my contention is that the Antichrist is going to be revealed in the first seal. And we'll go into great detail to prove that. Because there are those that think, no, Antichrist is revealed right here at the midpoint of the tribulation. Because when he goes into the temple and pronounces himself to be God and all this happens, there are those who say, that's when he's revealed. And this is when the day of the Lord starts here, uh, here, is what some people say. And I'm going to show you how I, that can't be so. I say it's here. And I'll, I'll give you why in just a minute. The second seal, you have war. Third seal, you have famine. Fourth seal, you have pestilence. And at least four of these seals are going to take place before you even get to the abomination of desolation. Then you have the fifth seal, which is mortar. Sixth, sixth seal is earthquakes and so forth. So all that's going to happen in the first, as the birth pangs start and they get stronger and stronger, the midpoint is here. Now, I'm going to explain why it's my contention. One of the reasons why it's my contention that the day of the Lord cannot start here 
and the Antichrist is not revealed here. And this is why. See, in verse 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2 and 3, you can look at it up here, look in your Scripture. <clears throat> verse 2 says, For you yourselves know full way the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. In verse 3, While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them like a woman with... Uh, suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Now, here's my contention. Follow this. What do, we, what do we know about the day of the Lord? It's going to come suddenly, and it's going to come at a time when they are saying peace and safety. How in the world can the day of the Lord start here? Are people going to be saying peace and safety after all of this has taken place? There's no way. In Revelation chapter 6, it talks about the people are going to be hiding in caves and saying, let the, let the mountains fall down upon us to hide us from, he who, from the wrath of He who sits upon the throne. Millions of people are going to... You've you got war, you've got famine, you've got pestilence. You, you, you're talking about martyrs. Everything is going to be more horrendous than it has ever been before. So if the day of the Lord is going to come suddenly... And it's going to come when they are saying peace and safety. My contention is it cannot be there. Who is going to be saying peace and safety at that time? Nobody. Okay? Any questions about this before I press on? Because I'm fixing to kill it. Darken it. Okay. Back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, what I'm saying in these... I'm sorry I don't have this any bigger. Can you, can you, can you see that by now? Okay, I don't know. Michael? Okay. Um, <clears throat> you'll also say, notice in verse 3, look at it again. You look at it in your scriptures here. It says, while they are saying peace and safety. Notice the pronoun. When Paul was speaking of the rapture of the church... He used the pronouns we and us. Now he's using the pronouns they and them. He is not including himself, nor, in my opinion, any church-age believers in what's happening here. Because he's talking about the day of the Lord, and when the day of the Lord even begins, we're going to already be gone. Uh, we looked at the birth pangs. Here's something that you may remember. This part here. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 5 through 9, Jesus Christ is answering questions of what it's going to be like at the end of the age, the end of the Jewish age. Because they were Jews, the church age hadn't even begun yet. So he's giving, him, giving them information as to what they can expect. This is essentially prophecy. Over here in Revelation chapter 6, verse 1 through 9, is explaining what's going to happen. This is actually prophecy also. But this is giving the details over here 
about what Christ said is going to happen here. And look, look how, when you compare them, how close they are. In Matthew 24, verse 5, when they ask what's going to happen, the first thing he said is there will be false messiahs and they will lead, mislead many. You go here to Revelation chapter 6, the first sealed judgment that comes upon the earth, which we're going to look at in a lot more detail, is that the rider on the white horse, the false messiah, is going to come. That's the Antichrist. So we have false messiah here, false messiah over here. The second seal deals with wars and rumors of wars. Verse 6 and 7 over here. Revelation 6, verse 3 and 4. The rider on the red horse makes war. Over here in Matthew 24, Christ says there'll be famines. Verse 7. The third seal over here, rider on the black horse, talks in verse 5 and 6, talks about famine. Matthew 24, verse 7, talks about death, pestilence, and earthquakes. You go to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6 is giving the chronological order of the seals that are going to be broken and the judgment falling upon the earth of Christ rejectors, grace haters, unbelievers. And every time Jesus Christ breaks a seal, remember it's a great scroll, and every time he breaks a seal, the judgment is released. And so, number four here, death, pestilence, earthquakes. Number four seal over here, the rider on the pale horse talks about death. Talks about pestilence and so forth. Now the fifth seal here, believers are hated and killed, verse 9. In Revelation 6, verse 9, the fifth seal, believers are martyred. Talking about martyred believers. There is a harmony that exists and a balance when you are rightly dividing the word of truth. So these things are going to happen just as they said in Matthew 24. What actually Christ is describing here and John was describing here in Revelation is the judgment phase of the day of the Lord. You got that? And then I made a point that the combination of four things will exist when true peace and safety will be provided by our Lord. Now, the Antichrist is going to convince the people when the day of the Lord is going to begin that there's going to be peace and safety. But he's a liar. He's a deceiver. According to, to the truth, God, uh, four things are going to exist. Israel is going to be regathered in their homeland. That's a must. It has to happen. Of course, we know that's already done. There will be a great world ruler. There will be a temple in Jerusalem. And a covenant of peace will be made with Israel. All these exist at the second advent, but Satan will counterfeit the last three. Many will be fooled by believing Antichrist is the legitimate ruler of the world and that he will keep the covenant with Israel. So here's verse 3 again. While they are saying peace and safety, the destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pains of a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Look at that. 
They, they, they. Not us or we. I'm just quickly going through here. It'll come upon them suddenly. I have all these verses. I don't think we need to go through these verses, but if you want to to familiarize yourself more with the, with the day of the Lord, you can go to these verses and you'll see, uh, well, I just like where it says peace and safety. You have Jeremiah 6, 13 and 14. Destruction will come upon them uh, like birth pangs upon a woman. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 6 through 9. Now, 1 Thessalonians, this New Testament, is talking about eschatology. But notice the same very similar verbiage is used in an Old Testament scripture, Isaiah 13, 6 through 9. Well, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. What does that tell you already? It's talking about the judgment phase of the day of the Lord. Therefore, all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt. And they will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will rise like a what? A woman in labor. Labor pains. They will look to one another in astonishment. Their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and He will exterminate its sinners from it. And that's a good, another good description of the baptism of fire. See, isn't it great that I don't have to stop and go about the baptism of fire again and all that? You know, you're connecting the dots. Now you're seeing how it's, it's, it's coming together. Let's see what else we need here about. Uh, they shall not escape. The most powerful negative in the Greek is u may. U and may are both negatives. You put them both together and it says there ain't no way. That no one is going to uh, escape. Uh, verse 4. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day of the Lord should overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not, uh, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. So this isn't just talking about brethren, talking about believers. This darkness is not going to overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. In other words, he's not saying that the rapture, I mean, the, uh, the, the day of the Lord is coming, and it's not going to overtake you in the sense that you're going to be alert, and you're going to see it coming. So when it happens, you're going to be aware of it. That's not what it's saying. You understand that? Why? Because we're not going to be here. It's not talking about that. It's just talking about it's not going to take you, overtake you like a thief, because it just said in the previous verse that the day of the Lord is going to come like what? A thief in the night. And so he's just continuing that thought. It's not going to overtake you like a thief. It's not going to overtake you at all. You're not going to be here, is the thought here. For you are sons of light and sons of day. This is not talking about being experientially sanctified. This is talking about position in Christ. We are all sons or daughters of the light, sons of the day. One way of relating that, just pretend that the thing I had up here is still here. We're, we're sons and daughters of the blessing side, the light side over here. That's what he's talking about. 
Not of the dark side, which is the, the judgment phase. We are, not of, we are not of night nor of darkness. But now it's starting to talk about being, if you want to add the experiential sanctified or being alert, it says, so then let us not sleep as others do. It's not talking about death sleep, you know, for believers that, that sleep. This is talking about uh, being lethargic spiritually, not knowing what's going on. But let us be alert and sober. And then we have, I have scads of verses here that have to do with these. But I want to go on. Let's see here. For you are all sons of light. Notice that it says you are all sons of light. Are all believers spiritually sanctified? Being light in that sense. In other words, if this is saying for you are all sons of light, if it's talking about in a in a spiritual growth sense, then it couldn't say all, could it? It's not talking about being alert and spiritually uh, aware of what's going on and say, well, only those who are spiritually growing, only the more mature believers are sons of light. No, it says all are sons of light, which makes it positional, which means we are not of darkness, we are not of anything that has to do with that time of judgment, which is for those who are not of the light, but of the darkness. They're in spiritual darkness. They're spiritually, they are dead. And by the way, we have sons here is the Greek word huios, H-U-I-O-S, which means adult sons. And if it was talking about whether we are... Uh, if it was talking about levels of spiritual growth, it, some of them are, we're not all, let me, let me put it this way. We are all sons of God, we us, positionally. But experientially, unfortunately, most believers aren't we us, they're brephos, they're babies. Sons of the day. We are not of night, are of darkness. Look at, uh, don't look at it. We use Zephaniah 1, 14 and 15 says, Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it, the warriors cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day. A day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and desolation. Look at this. A day of darkness and gloom. And day of clouds and thick darkness. And Paul is saying in 1 Thessalonians 5, chapter 3 here, uh, 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 in chapter 5, he's saying, you're not of that darkness. You're of light. This, this desolation is for those who are in darkness. It's a day of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others. Let us be sober. Sleep here is uh, uh, has to do with, again, not being spiritually asleep here. Well, we're covering a lot of ground here. I mean, <laughs> wouldn't it be nice if we could all just go through it this fast and have it? Let us be alert. I have the thing here about being alert. Then verse 7 and 10. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, 
and those who get drunk. It's, it's talking about those who uh, are asleep. This is not talking about believers being asleep. Those who are spiritually dead are, in a sense, asleep. They don't, know what's, they don't get it. They don't get the picture. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. This is the carousing. This is describing those who have rejected. But since we... See, you got but. Now you see contrast. Darkest and light. Blessing and destruction. Contrasted here. But since we are, we are of the day, let us... Be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and a helmet of hope and salvation. For God has not... Look at this. For God has not destined us for wrath. Are y'all looking at your Bibles? Underline that. God has not destined us for wrath, but obtaining salvation. This isn't talking about eternal salvation. It's talk, talking about deliverance. God has not destined us for wrath. We don't have anything to do with the darkness. We are of light. We're not going to go through that judgment phase. We're going to be in the blessing phase. He's not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining of salvation or deliverance through our Lord Jesus Christ. And how's that going to happen? He's going to come physically and deliver us. Who died for us that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with Him. Doesn't matter. Now, this what makes this is important. It says whether they're awake or asleep. It's not talking about. Some people think this is talking about whether you're uh, awake or dead. This kind of sleep isn't talking about the being dead sleep. It's talking about being spiritually asleep. And so it says it doesn't matter. Even if you are a spiritual moron, even if you have accepted heresy and apostasy, it doesn't matter. Whether you are awake spiritually or asleep, it doesn't matter. For He's going to come and get us and we will live together with Him. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night and those who get drunk at night so forth. Okay. Um... I think we went through the judgments here, standing firm, hope. Boy, we got went through a lot, didn't we? These are the celestial disturbances. We don't need to go through that. Maybe we're done with this. End of the week. Okay, I think we've got enough. Do you all feel like you know pretty well now about the day of the Lord? We can't stop without getting verse uh, 10. <laughs> For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live, live together with Him. Uh, what I'm thinking of is uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. Turn to that one. What does that say? You, remember, you need to remember this verse. You need to remember 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. Well, we'll start with verse uh, 9 here in 1 Thessalonians 1. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols 
to serve a living and true God. And what else are they to do? What does it say? And wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You got that? Now, when we go, we're done with that. Now, we're going to go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 5. And what do we see here? They were all bent out of shape because this is what Paul was telling them. You, Christ is going to come to deliver us from the wrath to come. They were deceived to thinking that, oh, oh, we're going to be in it after all. And they were really bent out of shape about it. It all fits. Let me get this off while I go through these shenanigans and get back where I was. Okay. Now we're ready for the verse. I was just setting you up with the day of the Lord so you'll know what it's talking about. So, because verse... Uh, uh, 3 and 4, it starts with verse 3. This is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. It says, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or reject or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So he's saying, he's describing the man of lawlessness. This is the Antichrist. And what he's saying is, look, quit being upset. You can't be in the day of the Lord because these things have to happen first. Have these things happened? No. So forget about being all bent out of shape about this. This is what we're going to see him say. So let's look at this first phrase, that no one in any way deceive you. The word deceive is ex apatao. E-X-A-P-A-T-A-O. It's a verb, aorist, active, subjunctive. It means to deceive completely, beguile, or seduce. It is easy to deceive people these days because so many people are spiritually ir illiterate. Most people live in the, by their emotions are easily duped by smooth-talking predators. Is that true? You know it's true. There are so many stupido Christians today it just makes me ill. They don't know straight up from straight down. They are so easily duped. They'll hear something that somebody says, and especially on, on TV. You have this nut channel going 24-7, and these guys get up, and they have the PhDs, and they have the distinguished voice, and all. Oh, they look like they really know what they're talking about, and they just spew out false doctrines constantly, and the people can't discern what's going on because they don't know doctrine. Romans chapter 16, verse 17 and 18 says, Now I urge you, brethren, to keep your eyes on those who cause dissension and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves not to our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. That word there, appetites, is kolia, in the Greek, and it means emotions. The Greeks didn't have a psychological type of vocabulary. So when they were talking about emotions, they would say the kolia, which was essentially the womb. It was just a, something empty there. Or they would use the bowels, or they would use uh, the kidneys. They would use different body parts to talk about emotions. So he says, for such men 
are slaves to their emotions, and by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. That was happening now, uh, then and it's happening now, is it not? Smooth talkers. And they talk to people and they give them things that aren't so and the people don't even care to look it up. They don't even care. It's, it sounds good to me. I think I'll buy onto that one. And, and when you talk to people and you start asking them questions, notice how fast they want to sub, change the subject and cut you off. And the reason is because their theology is an inch deep and a mile wide. Only in most cases, an inch deep and maybe two inches wide. They know John 3.16 and past that, well, I don't know. Okay, for it. Now, I have here the day of the Lord, but there is one theologian that I'm going to quote to you either tonight or, tomorrow, or Thursday night that says it very well could be referring to the first part of verse 1, which is talking about when we are gathered together to the Lord, when the Lord shall come and we're gathered together with Him. It would work either way, you understand, eschatology-wise. And to us, whether he is referring to the day of the Lord or whether he's talking to the rapture, about the rapture, in either case, what does it mean? Things can, it can't happen. The rapture can't happen. The day of the Lord can't happen until these things happen, except we realize that these things don't have to happen for the, for the rapture. Nothing has to happen for that. But when we get to that, that particular theologian, you'll see what I'm talking about. For it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. Okay, here we are. We've arrived at it. The word right here. I've got three pages of notes on this word. And some of you are going, oh, no. <laughs> well, we'll get into it a little bit and we'll save some for next time. How's that? Okay. This is huge what this is talking about, this word apostasy. Most people think that it's talking about apostasy, meaning, what do, you, what do you think apostasy means? It means to turn your back on something you believed prior to that. So, it, the word is apostasia, A-P-O-S-T-A-S-I-A. In the Greek, it's a noun, nominative, finger, feminine, and singular. And it is normally looked at as being a departure falling away. Now this is a quote from the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, Kittle, Bromley, and Friedrich. It says, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, apostasia is used in the absolute sense as an event of the last days alongside or prior to the appearance of the man of lawlessness. Now, when we talk about the apostasy, that, that, ant, that the day of the Lord ain't going to start to the apostasy, a lot of people, and I've talked to people, say, well, you know, it's been apostasy. We've got apostasy now. Is that true? Yes. Ever since, I guess, Cain decided that <clears throat> he was upset because God did not accept his sacrifice, which is turnips and I don't know what it was, vegetables, whatever, Maybe he had some fruit in there. It didn't have any blood to it, so God did not accept it. And he got in a big toot, and you have apostasy. You have people who have turned their back on truth, turned their back on God, on what they have believed previous to that. And that's what I put up here. There have been periods of apostasy since the beginning of the church, and even before, however, 
This apostasy is referred to as, look, underline in your Bibles, the, that is the definite article in the Greek, and it's important, the apostasy. It will be a worldwide complete apostasy that it is distinguishable from all others. It won't be like any other apostasy. It will be completely different. Now, I'm just going to tell you right now, because we don't have much time left, and I want you to get kind of the idea. The reason this apostasy is going to be different is because there has been areas of uh, over the earth and periods of time where there's been great apostasy. There's great apostasy today. But there has never been a time when there has been complete and utter apostasy because there's always been believers on earth. And Christ said that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The church is going to be here until Christ takes it out. So this is a, a different apostasy. It's the apostasy, the complete apostasy. There's going to be total apostasy because there won't be any believers here. Okay, now I'm going to get you a little bit into the... I know this is going to be hard because you, y'all have been concentrating good and we're in the, the last steps of the race. But I've got to throw some things at you here, so just stay tuned in for a minute. The noun is from... This is talking about apostasia. This noun is from aphistemi. That's A-P-H-I-S-T-E-M-I. Transitive to remove or spatially either spatially or within a relationship, to win over, seduce, the middle means their middle voice, to remove oneself, to resign, desist, or fall away. That's from the Theological Dictionary from Kittle. Now we have something here from, who is this? Uh, No, we're not there yet. Okay. Are y'all getting dizzy? Okay, hang in there. Here we go. The Greek word that is here translated as falling away is apostasia. The root word actually means departure or removal from. You see where this is going? Paul says that before the day of the Lord begins, there must first uh, come a removing. There are two kinds of removing that are going to take place. I know what this is. This is from G. Uh, Vernon McGee. This is a quote from G. Vernon McGee. He says, There are two kinds of removing that are going to take place. First, the organized church will depart from the faith. Now, let me explain what he's saying there. He's not saying the organized church, us. Church is going to be gone. There's going to be an organized church that takes its place and is described in Revelation 17 as the whore that rides the beast. That's the church he's talking about. There are two kinds of removing, those that are going to take place. First, the organized church will depart from the faith. That is what is called apostasy. But there will be a total apostasy when the Lord comes and cannot take and that cannot take place until the church is removed. So I guess he's talking about there's apostasy that takes place with regards to the church. That's an ongoing thing. But when the Lord comes, it's going to be total. 
The Lord comes, that cannot take place until the church is removed. The Lord asked, when the Son of Man cometh to earth, shall he find faith? That is in Luke chapter 18, verse 8. When he says, the faith, he means that body of truth which he left here. The answer to the question is no, he will not find faith here when he returns. Y'all getting what's coming, talking about? The rapture occurs, we're gone. The church, the true church, us, we're out of here. And then there's going to be another church, another one world religion that's going to replace it. And so when Christ returns at the second advent, is he going to find faith, the faith, the true faith? And the answer is no. There will be total apostasy because of two things. Number one, the organization of the church has departed from the faith. It has apostatized. This is the talking about the false religion that's going to be... It's going to, it has apostatized in the sense of the apostasy though, as we normally know, think of it. And two, there has been another departure, the departure of the true church from earth. The departure of the true church leads into total apostatizing of the organized church, which will be here then. The day of the Lord cannot begin, nor the great tribulation period until the departure of the true church has taken place. You see, we're looking at apostasia. The apostasy, you understand what that normally means, but what we're going to go into in even more detail is that that word is a, it comes, apostasy, or apostasia is a cognate of ophistomy. And ophistomy doesn't mean to turn your back on something you believed before. It means to depart. You're out of here. You're gone. That's what ophistomy means. And essentially what J. Vernon McGee is saying here, he thinks it's talking about both. There will be a total apostasy from those on planet Earth because there won't be anything but unbelievers left when we're gone. Now that's total apostasy in that sense of the word. But also, also he's saying the reason that it can be total is because you look at the issue of ophistomy, which means a departure out of here. And he's saying... It means both things. The organized church which is left down here will totally depart from the faith. We see it pictured as the great harlot in Revelation 17, and that was by J. Vernon McGee through the Bible on 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. And y'all look like you're about saturated. Yeah, but it's not the second apostasy. There's not a first apostasy, apostasy and a second apostasy. What we're looking at is words that have uh, somewhat similar meaning, but apostasia is a cognate from ophistomy. Ophistomy means, if you just take that at, at, its, at its very uh, origin, original meaning, it means a departure. And when we get into these other quotes that I have about this word, it's going to come out in even greater meaning. And you'll be fresher then, and you'll be able to hang on. Did you have a question? Okay. Okay. 
So, wait till we get... See, we're dealing with the apostasia, the apostasy, and I know this is going to be grinding it out because you've got to see the whole meaning of these words. The next thing that we're going to deal with in this verse is the revealing of the man of lawlessness. Well, that's going to be more fun. I mean, for me it was fun. Um, because you, you go to three parts of the Bible and boom, 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 they all harmonize together. And when you, when you see it, what it does to me is it helps me think, what a, what a fabulous thing that God has left us, the Word of God. And how when it comes together in your own mind and you put the pieces together and you see how these writers didn't know any other, you know, scads of time has passed, and yet it's completely coherent. It harmonizes, and even the words that are used and the tense of the, of the words that are used. When the, when the man of lawlessness is revealed, it's in three verses it's talking about him being revealed, and in every verse, passive voice. Satan in control. He is not in control. God is. The man of sin or lawlessness is going to be revealed because he's allowed to, not that he's going to bring it about. And who is it that's going to allow it? Well, who's in control? Well, I'm getting ahead. I just love teaching. I love giving this to you. And sometimes I forget that we can only take so much at a time. But hopefully that little review of First Thessalonians 5 will give you a, a, another refresher about the day of the Lord and you'll understand what it's talking about. And that it cannot happen until the apostasia from aphistomy takes first and then the man of lawlessness is revealed. And when people ask you, who, who do you think? You know, what, you know what I answer when people ask me, who do you think the uh, Antichrist is or will be? I say, I don't care. I'm not going to be here. You can speculate till the cows come home. It's very possible he's already alive. He might be in the wings right now. The whole issue is, is God ready for him to be revealed? Because in God's plan, when he's ready to be revealed, he will be revealed. The restrainer that holds him back now from being revealed is going to be gone. He will be revealed. And that's when it's going to hit the fan. I'm, well... I probably shouldn't have said that. So let's just end. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word that is so powerful. We are in awe that you put all these pieces together in a way that we can comprehend and understand them and that now we can look anxiously for our Lord to come and deliver us from the wrath to come. We don't have to worry about the Antichrist or what's going to be happening to us in that desperate time because you, in your grace, will deliver your bride. We don't earn or deserve any of it, but we're very thankful that you have told us ahead of time how it's going to happen. So we thank you for this and pray that you will help us to remember it, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.